On today's episode of the Fandom Science Podcast, we go behind the scenes and into the athlete's mind when they're under pressure. How does choking really happen from a psychological perspective? And what personality traits can make an athlete more susceptible to it? Are right-handed athletes more likely to choke compared to lefties? We also talk about what strategies athletes should work on to avoid choking and what their coaches can do to help them with it. All of that and more with Dr. Chris Misanio, a sports psychologist from Federation University Australia and one of the world's leading experts in this topic. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast for the best sports science content. So the first question I want to ask you is, this is what I usually ask my guests is, how did you get started in your field and what made you choose your area of work? Because it seems like in sports science and sports psychology, everyone's got a different path. Yeah, so um, just to, I'll, I'll start off by a shortened version. Um, um, most of us in sports science sort of like sport in general, and uh, I'm a, I'm by by trade, if you will, I'm a ten pin bowler. So um, uh, I I like any sport that's related to the mental side. I'm I'm involved in right away. Uh, I do I play some golf as well. So anything that gets you any sport that gets you thinking is is what I like to do. So um, yeah, so I got involved uh, just by getting involved in the sports uh, area and also learning about sport and the fact that you know, golf and 10 pin bowling and, and those sports, when you get to an elite level, you know, um, you know, the mental side is, is quite important. So I've, I started doing that and then I got into um, psychology and, uh, and then uh, learned about sports psychology when I went to the University of Florida. Uh, and I went, well, that's, that's my career path right there. Don't know exactly how it's going to go, but I wanted to, to learn about that. And, um, sort of went into, uh, you know, sports psychology and yeah, sort of, as they say in Australia, Bob's your uncle. That's it. Voila. Uh, that's how I got here. Yeah. And I mean, what, like what better setting to study choking than golf probably? Cause it, like they're probably the most under the most scrutiny when it comes to choking. Yeah. Well, uh, golf is, um, one of the sports that's it's easy to know when someone's not doing very well yeah. uh, in a, a performance setting. So um, yeah, so that's, that's part of the reasons, you know, part of the reason why I just wondered, look, why, why do people, you know, experience this? Why do people, what happens when this, this actually occurs? So that's one of the reasons why I got into it and, and was started to get interested in it. Right. Well, so let's get into it. So then, when we talk about choking, uh, we hear it a lot in the mainstream media. Every time there's a big sporting event, someone loses, someone wins, there's a choker. Um, it's a big storyline every time. What's the difference between how choking is defined in the mainstream media versus sports psychology? And also, what's your own definition of it? Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting you, you say that there's a debate at the moment on what choking actually is. And um in in the research anyway and uh right now there is a large discrepancy i would say in the mainstream media and what it is in uh the research mm-hmm. um 
in the in the fact that we we look more at the the amount of the decrease in performance, although it's hard to differentiate between what choking is in a mainstream sort of media and what it is in performance, let's say in an experimental setting. So um, in the media, it's pretty much anything, anything goes. People talk about choking as, as if someone makes a mistake and they say, you know, and, and you might, might experience anxiety in that situation. And, um, yeah, the, the people say it's it's a choke in a me, in a media context, but in a research context, you you need to be a little bit more specific on what it is. It is a you know you know you have to have a few elements. You have to have uh, heightened pressure or anxiety in that context. Uh, you need to have substandard performance. What it some substandard performance, but uh, standard that of, of a normal standard. So you have to have something, some normal, um, uh, context or to, yeah, baseline to, 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 um, look at it from, uh, and, um, you know, that might not necessarily be, uh, novices, novices that, you know, there's a debate at the moment whether, um, novices can actually experience choking or not, because we can't really in a research setting, if you get people that are inexperienced at a task, how do you know it's choking when it might be just that they're not good enough yet at, at that particular performance? So, yeah. So, so how we define it in a, in a research context, if you will, it's, it's basically having an increase in anxiety and a, a large decrease in performance from what is normally expected. And that's kind of, you know, a generic sort of uh, a hybrid between a, a generic definition and a, a research-based definition, if you if you will. Right. No, that definitely makes sense. Um, and you're right about the point of novices. I mean, they would know if they're choking or not because only they know where they're at usually as far as their standard performance. But from a research setting, it could be difficult to identify. Now, yeah. I'm wondering if you can sort of take us behind the scenes and into the athlete's mindset when they're under pressure and when they're choking. So what are the main mechanisms or models of choking that sports psychologists have identified and how do they work? Yeah, so um, there's two main theories or models that are related to choking. One is called the self-focus model. Um, You can, there's a number of different names for it, but self-focus model or um, conscious processing model basically is, is or hypothesis. And basically what that suggests is that when anxiety increases, people choke because they tend to think too much about their performance. So, uh, colloquial, colloquial terms might be paralysis by analysis. So they, they perform badly because they're analyzing things too much. Um, even though, uh, that performance, if they're experienced enough, that performance should be automatic. They shouldn't have to think about it as much. So they kind of, you know, revert back to a stage of learning where they're consciously processing things. Okay. The, so, um, yeah. yeah, go no, ahead. Go ahead, please. I was going to say the second model is just the distraction model in that um, the individual, when, when you increase anxiety, um, the distract. <coughs> individuals get distracted, people get distracted by things, whether it be internal distractions, you know, um, how you're feeling, 
or it could be external distractions of crowd noise or people around you, you know, those types of things. Um, so again, it, it could be either or, and some people suggest that there might be, um, you know, these two mechanisms, these two models might interact, uh, you know, as one. I've suggested that they, you know, you may not be able to pick apart those two models and they might, might interact a little bit together. Um, and it might be a result of the anxiety itself. Right. And so if we can like dissect each one a little bit, when we talk about self-focus, so an athlete after, you know, hours and hours and years of practice, they have the movements and, and the, uh, the skills kind of ingrained in them, they become automatic, but then in self-focus, they kind of uh, like deviate from that and they go back to their earlier stages of, of skill development. Is that kind of what happens? Yeah, so exactly. So in the self-focus model, that's kind of where they're at. They, When they're experienced and they're experts, they shouldn't have to think too much uh, about how to, how to execute. But anxiety actually somewhat voluntarily or involuntarily involuntarily makes them become more conscious about how they're performing because they might, maybe it's perfectionism or, you know, those types of things that they, they want to, they want to make it right. And they potentially do sort of, um, revert back to, to those, those rules or instructions that their coach might've given them, you know, when they were first starting out. Right. Yeah. I think I can, I mean, I'm nowhere near, a, an elite level athlete and um, I'll never will be, but neither am I. No one is but no one listening is anyway. Um, but I can, I can just recall from my experience, let's say, you know, when I play soccer and there's a, there's a penalty kick. If, you know, if it's uh, at the end of the game and maybe it's a close game and I know it'll make a big difference whether I score this or not, I start to kind of think about things I would not think about normally because they're automatic yeah. like i i like to you know i'd start to think about where the positioning of my feet are um <laughs> which way am i supposed to run like all those things that normally would be an automatic movement i start to break them down step by step and that kind of throws me off yeah and that's amazing isn't it like even to the point that you know people think about how they're walking if they're just walking down the street and they get nervous about something it's just a bit yeah it's it's strange, isn't it? It's that yeah. should, something you shouldn't have to think about. You yeah. kind of you know start thinking about in that instance. Yeah, or like if you have a job interview and you're nervous and you start like, where do I put my hands? Like, what do I do with my hands? Yeah. Normally, you're not thinking about where your hands are. Your hands are just your hands. Yeah, should be natural, right? Exactly. Should, yeah. So okay, when it comes to self focus, then what kind of strategies uh, do sports psychologists work with athletes on to to alleviate that side of of choking? So um, self-focus, uh, there's, there's a couple different research um, strategies that we, we use. We want to try to get the individual out of their own head if we're talking about self-focusing. So um, I've used, uh, you know, there, originally there was um, research done on doing two things at once. So do, it's called dual task paradigm. And basically, you know, initially they, you know, researchers, started asking people to just when they're performing a task um let's say a basketball free throw uh you know shot um you know when they're 
performing a basketball free throw, they asked people to do some arithmetic tasks. So, uh, for example, counting backwards by seven from, you know, counter, counting backwards from 1,000 from 1, by sevens, just doing 1,000, 997, and continue on from there. So, so backwards. So it's not something not normal, something different. And what that was to do is to distract the person from actually thinking about what they were supposed to be doing. So basketball free throw. All right, make sure that my hand is here and make sure I follow through and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, in that case, it's making people to think about the arithmetic or the math problem rather than the actual skill, which allowed the body to do what it's supposed to do um, at a time when you might be anxious or when, at a time when you might start thinking too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's a, like a cheeky way of tricking your brain into... Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly, yeah, absolutely right. So, um, so that, that, that was one early on. Um, so I used, I used music as a way to do that as well. So I got people, uh, initially the study was, um, you know, you, you can do this with any, any music. Uh, what we used in, a, in this context was um, a song, uh, uh, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life by, you know, and it was, it was you know, long time ago, Monty Python, um, Life of Brian. Uh, awesome. It was a musical. And uh, yeah, we use this always look on the bright side of life. And it was a, a cheeky way of saying, look, nothing is that bad, you know, in, especially in sport. You know, you might be anxious, but, you know, it's not you're not going to die from it and, and all that stuff. So it, it used music and cognitive restructuring and those types of things, just thinking about the, the situation differently to get people to get out of their own head. And it was with music. So we would ask people to make sure that they concentrate when they're, when they're shooting a, in the basketball setting, when they're shooting a free throw, make sure they're concentrating on the words of the song. So again, they're thinking about the song rather than um, actually focusing on, on the task itself. And that, that kind of helped improve performance from that perspective as well. And so, yeah, thinking about the song or thinking about arithmetics, something along those lines would get them, like you said, out of their head and revert back into their automatic phase where they're executing a skill that's, you know, ingrained in them as opposed to thinking about all those steps. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. right. And so another one, uh, another strategy that I read often about is analogy motor learning. Could you explain a little bit how that works? Yeah, so that's uh, Rich Masters coined that uh, basically there's two sides of the coin in relation to learning. Um, explicit learning where coaches do a great deal of this. They do this all the time. They, they tend to over-instruct. So giving too many rules, too many uh, explicit instructions on how to perform a task. And that, that leads to this, this self-focus where, where initially when you're in the cognitive stage of learning, when you're thinking about things and trying to do things, if your coach is giving you information, when you get into um, more autonomous or automatic stages of learning, then you become uh, more inclined to think about those rules when you perform a skill, uh, especially when you're an expert. So what Rich Masters did was they, he came up with a way to instruct in an analogy setting. So let's, he, he used 
table tennis um, players as an example. So instead of giving um, people all of these rules to, of table tennis uh, and how to hit a forehand, what he did was he just told people to um, draw a triangle. So draw a triangle from, you know, up. I don't know how your, your listeners are just listening to this. So I'm trying to instruct at the same time. I hope they can imagine a triangle. <laughs> yeah. So triangle in a table tennis forehand motion. So sort of up and back, uh, down and then uh, forward. Uh, draw a triangle in that, in that um, situation. So, um, so in that case, you're not, you're not really, you don't have many rules of how to perform the skill. All you're doing is drawing a triangle. And what he found under pressure for experienced players was that, um, you know, that triangle, drawing the triangle actually led to better performance under pressure. Um, instead of explicitly sort of thinking about the rules of the actual task itself. So, um, yeah, that, I, I think that's a good way if you can, you can, if coaches, especially those listeners that are coaches, can actually think about ways to coach people in an analogy setting, then they're likely to improve performance under pressure rather than decrease or choke under pressure because they don't think about those rules. They just think about the triangle, drawing the triangle when they're hitting the forehand. And that's because in, in practice settings, their coaches overload them with information. And so when they get into the you know, into the game, well, the coach is not in their ear telling him what to do. And so they're like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do now? I'm not used to someone not telling me what to do every step of the way. And then they start yeah. to choke. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the reason I feel like it's, I call it, um, I call it overanalyzing, uh, you know, generally, and some people are more prone to overanalysis, um, you know, just in general or overlearning or overthinking, uh, you can call it overthinking. And, you know, when, some people are prone to overthinking. They they tend to use what is there, uh, and if if that knowledge is there, then they will tend to use it. So I try to when I'm asked when I'm suggesting to coaches what to do, uh, you know, when they're coaching, probably limits the amount of information. Uh, you know, obviously people need information, but especially if those people that are you know in their personality, they they tend to overthink or maybe they're perfectionistic. Um, you know, try to limit the amount of information you give to that athlete because they will, when they're anxious, they'll go back to that and use that. And that's not necessarily good. Yeah. And you know what that reminds me of is, so I'm, I'm come from the family of teachers. My, my dad is a teacher. My mom's a teacher. I tutor myself yep. and I TA at school. And one thing I try to do all that always is when, I'm teaching someone or tutoring them is not to hold their hand every step of the way, especially when it comes to math or something, because when it comes to the test and I'm not there to hold their hand through every question, they're going to choke under pressure. And a lot of my students experience that when I first start working with them, they tell me when it gets to the test, I, I just, I panic and I, I screw up. And so I work with them on practicing on their own, analyzing things on their own and not me force feeding them information all the time. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that's, you know, in sports setting, you know, when, when, um, you know, I, ca I call it also coaching dependent. You don't want to, in, in that case, you're the coach and, you know, you're, you're feeding them uh, the information. Yes. But they could get, they could become dependent on that information 
too, a lot of times they can become dependent on that information. And if you continuously give them that information and then when they, you know, shoot a jump shot or, or do a free throw uh, in basketball and they don't have that information to say, well, what, what happened? Then, you know, that that's not necessarily good for them. And in your case, it's the same from a, a test taking perspective. If, if they don't know, they don't, if they're not getting that information from you all the time, they could tend to, when they're anxious, not be able to do it. So it's good to, to limit the amount of information sometimes, especially in a sports setting. Right. And so are there any other strategies that sports psychologists usually work on when it comes to self-focus? The other one that's recently uh, uh, doing some research with um, some of my colleagues in Germany um, on um, hemis- brain hemisphere priming, um, so or we call it left-hand contraction. So um, to, to make a long story short, um, if you squeeze a, a left ball in your left, sorry, a, ball, a, a soft ball in your left hand, that actually activates the right side of your brain. If you squeeze the right, uh, a softball in your right hand, that activates the left side of the brain, um, just in general. Um, right. And again, the left side of the brain is the, the more analytic side, and that's probably where the self-focus model sort of comes from. If you're talking about brain functioning, the right side is more of your emotion, emotional context, uh, less analytic side. Um, relaxation response side side of things um just in general and so what we're doing is we're using squeezing a softball in the left hand to actually activate the right side of the of the brain so that that side can be more activated more rather than the the left analytical side of your brain so if we can activate the right side a little bit more um prior to performance under pressure then maybe we can actually decrease choking and what we've, we've, we've found, we've gotten mixed results so far. Uh, Jürgen Beckman and his colleagues in 2013 um, sort of found this, um, this positive result, but recently we found positive, but also sort of mixed results with different sports um, from this perspective. So, you know, uh, it's going to happen. We're going to have, we're going to get mixed results sometimes. Um, but again, those people that are more analytical, you know, it's, this might be actually beneficial for them, um, getting them more relaxed. And I've, I've used it in, in my sport, tempin bowling as well. And I've, I feel like I'm less analytical when I'm actually squeezing the softball in my hand too, just as a, as a general sense. And it might not, you know, be effective for everyone. But for me, I feel, I feel like, you know, it's, if nothing else, it's actually relaxing me as a stress ball you know, usually does relax people if they're, if they're squeezing it a bit. Right. Right. And so this is probably one of the most interesting things I heard in sports psychology and sports science in general. And I wanted to ask you about it. Um, and it's related to, to what we were just talking about. So are right-handed athletes more likely to choke under pressure because of this right hemisphere, left hemisphere relationship? And like, how does that process work neurologically? Yeah, well, it's that's a very difficult question to answer from a scientific point of view because uh, technically, and and we've we have a, a, an article out recently on this. Um, technically, left there's there's less left-handed people in the world, so it's very difficult to to really get an understanding of this. 
Um, but what we've found generally and the trend in our study is that yes, right-handed people tend to uh, choke a little bit more than left-handed, but again, it's very difficult to, to look at scientifically because there's left, less left-handed people. Um, uh, so, so in that context, you know, what we, it's always been a right-handed dominant world, hasn't it? You know, yeah. uh, coaches, you know, when you're coaching, um, you know, you, you coach in a, a right-handed context. If I'm coaching someone, I talk in a right-handed context and you know, left-handers, you know, they have to think a little bit differently than us. So in that, in that way, you know, they, they may actually experience the world in a different way. They have to, you know, be more creative and the right hand, right, right side of your brain is, is the more creative uh, side of your brain anyway. So, um, you know, the, the left-handers actually, you know, they have to consider things from our perspective and theirs. They have to translate things. They have to be more creative in how they, they do things. So they use tech, generally they, they potentially use more of their right side of their brain. So um, that, that's why if they can be creative, if, if they're more creative, they tend to experience less choking just in general because they, they don't think as analytically, let's just say, as let's say the right-handers do from a general standpoint. Right. And so because there, so because there's a cross between what brain hemisphere controls what side of the body, like the left hemisphere is for right, right-sided uh, movements and the, the other way around. So if you're a righty, then the left hemisphere is activated and the left hemisphere is where all that analytical judgy type of, you know, side of the brain is. And that's what causes more choking compared to the lefty whose right hemisphere is activated. And that's, you know, relaxing and all that stuff. Yeah. If you, if you say it on in the, the ball squeezing context, you know, there's probably more to it than that, but you're on the right track. Um, right-handed people generally, if you're, mm. if you're thinking about what, what side of the brain, contralateral side of the brain actually, um, you know, you use when you're using, uh, when you're playing sport and you're dominant. Yes, that is correct. Although, you know, generally we can't say that just because you're using your right hand more, you're, you're always going to be in your left side of the brain type thing. Um, but yeah, that's generally the idea. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a bit of an oversimplification, but yeah. And, right. um, and it seems like, lefties are just blessed in a lot of ways you know like in in combat sports for example their southpaws are more likely to win because it's called like the fighting hand effect i think um and basically like there are more righties and so when you're a lefty the opponent can't read your movements but you can read their movements because you've seen a million righties in your career they haven't seen that many lefties and so they have the advantage over you um yeah they just they just have it made those lefties yeah, and that's that's not only in fighting sports, baseball, um, yeah. you know, those sports, tennis, you know, many of the players say that, you know, especially the right-handed players, many of the players say that their perception or the reading of the cues uh, in that in that perspective is a little bit different uh, when you're right-handed going against a left-handed player or a pitcher or whatever you want to call it. Um, so right. it's just a little bit different. So absolutely, you're right. Yeah. And so, okay, going back to the to the models or the mechanisms of choking. So we talked about self-focus and the strategies. 
uh, use uh, with it. So the other mechanism is called, or we refer to it as it's distraction. So yeah. how, do, how does that work and what kind of strategies uh, are used for it? So um, distraction, as, as uh, mentioned before, is about distraction. So internal or external distractions to you. Um, and basically there are a couple uh, that are more pronounced, uh, at least in the research, uh, than it is um, anywhere else. Uh, interventions that actually work. Um, routines, uh, so pre-performance or pre-shot routines actually are beneficial from a distraction uh, theory perspective because it gets people, so distraction is about, about maintaining focus and concentration on the task at hand. So the, the model, it suggests that you, you, get, you, you get sidetracked by distractions. So in this case, what you want to do is if you, you know that you're choking because you're distracted, you want to maintain your focus on the task. So there's a couple strategies. Pre-shot routine is one of them. So that's basically thinking and behaving in the same way prior to execution of the shot. So if you want to, you know, um, you know, if we're talking about uh, tennis, for example, you know, taking a couple deep breaths before you actually, um, you know, hit a serve or in golf, you know, doing your, your normal routine before you actually hit the ball. Um, so that, that's the base, basis for that. And we found our studies have found that routines are actually effective in improving performance when, when you're under pressure. Um, so again, it maintains your focus on the task. And even, you know, in interviews we've had uh, with, with participants, they've actually said, look, I've, I've been more focused. I've been more, I've concentrated better when I've had a routine. Uh, and and was able to to focus on that routine before I actually attempted the shot. Um, another one is a um, quiet eye. Um, so that's a, that's a good one as well. Quiet eye period is basically the uh, the, the short amount of time you you take before when you when you're targeting. Short amount of time you take to focus on the target. And if you maintain that quiet eye period or if you maintain that focus for longer before the execution of the skill, you tend to be more accurate. So that, that quiet eye period is good for accuracy-based sports. Um, golf is one, uh, 10 pin bowling is one where you're actually focusing on a target and you have to hit that target. Archery is another. Um, so if you can maintain focus on the target um, for longer, then, uh, then you're more, more accurate. Um, so in this context, you know, in this, in this case, the training of that quiet eye period is what we're talking about. So studies have shown, um, Sam Vine and Mark Wilson have looked at this, you know, training the quiet eye period, uh, and making sure that people look for a longer period of time at a target before they actually execute. And they found, um, good results in relation to performing under pressure from that point of view. So like an example of that could be a batter, a baseball batter, when you step up to the plate and th th you're facing a pitcher and the quiet eye is the, is like the last fixation that you have on the, on the ball as it's approaching you before you hit it. And so if you can prolong that fixation on the ball, you're less likely to choke basically. Yeah, you can you can say that from a baseball perspective, but the ball is actually moving in the pitcher's hand, and then also 
um, as it comes toward you. So it's very difficult to, you know, you can you can uh, look at quiet eye from that perspective, but um, it's probably easier in a context of something that's not moving. So an archery target, as an example, um, you're fixated on that target. You 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 know you you take the uh, the arrow back with the bow, and you know before you actually release, your your eye gaze is fixated on the target for longer, and then you release instead of being all over the place. Novices might have their, their eyes on the target for less time, and they, they might shift or have less fixations on the target than an expert would in that, uh, in that context. So you've got the right idea, but in, in baseball, the target is moving too much. So it's, it's, uh, it's more difficult to explain in that context, but it still, it still applies. Yeah, I guess, yeah, maybe it'd be a lot more efficient in, in a sport like archery or, you know, where the target is not moving. Um, for example, in, in soccer, like when they had this study on penalty kicks where they measured the team's baseline performance in, in penalty kicks and then they trained them on quiet eye. Basically, as you're approaching the kick, you you prolong your fixation on where you're going to kick the soccer ball, like what yeah. area of the net. And then the more you prolong that fixation, they're their scoring got better. That's kind of... Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So we talked about the mechanisms, the causes of choking, the strategies and all that. Um, I want to ask you, what are some personality traits that predict choking? And is there a way to screen for those traits earlier on? Let's say when I'm, you know, selecting athletes for my team, is there a way to, to screen for those things? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. If we could... Uh, uh, solve that question or, or um, hone in on that question, uh, you know, in, in one study specifically and, and say, look, we will, someone who has, let's say, perfectionistic tendencies as, as an example, you know, will they choke or, or other things? Yeah. And that's uh, the $100,000 question, especially from a talent ID uh, perspective. Um, so yeah, there are personality characteristics. Perfectionism might be one of those, uh, although it's less studied. Um, but certainly people that are more perfectionistic, um, tend to want to do better, uh, and perform better. Um, so yeah, perfectionism might be one of those. Um, some of the studies that I've looked at, there are three that are more common. Um, one is trade anxiety, which is, um, basically how, how anxious you generally might feel. Um, more, uh, some people are more anxious generally than others, uh, and their characteristics is, is, is to be more anxious. So trade anxiety, the higher that your trade anxiety, um, the more likely you are, you are to choke. Uh, another one is, is self-consciousness. So, um, basically someone who is more conscious of what people think about them or what, how they look, um, may have an effect on. Uh, whether you choke again, similar to trade anxiety, as you increase your feelings of being self-conscious, um, the, um, the more likely you are to experience choking. And then another one that is debated, uh, at the moment is, is the way you cope. So whether you approach a situation and the uh, approach, uh, the anxiety that you might experience or whether you avoid that, uh, leads to more choking behavior. So if you approach the anxiety and want to know why you experience that anxiety, you, uh, if you're an approach coper on that, 
you tend to experience choking more more so than if if you avoid the reasons why you are anxious, if you will. So, um, you know, if you're avoidance coper and you don't think about the anxiety and try to get away from it, then you tend to um, choke less uh, from that point of view. So th- those are the three, you know, and, and uh, that I've I've used in in some of my studies and. Um, you know, in, in that context, we found that we can predict at least somewhat uh, predict choking from those three measures. Although, if you look at my PhD dissertation, only 50% of all of my participants actually experienced choking when using those three um, measures. So, in the context of whether you can predict choking and whether you can identify people, um, you know, and Taking it into, into the context of those, those were experimental-based studies where you can't create the anxiety that people have in a, a regular sport context. Fifty um, percent ish of people actually experience choking in that context. So um, I think there are more predictors of choking than than that, such as perf- perfectionism, um, such as. Um, what Masters calls reinvestment, and that that is the likelihood of of thinking too much in the self-focus model, thinking too much about the explicit rules uh, of the context. So reinvestment might be, or uh, predispositional reinvestment, as uh, Rich Masters talks about. Um, so those are just those are just five that that might be involved. Narcissism, and all of those are are you know as as you increase those you then increase the likelihood of choking. Narcissism is another one where it's, it's the opposite. So the more narcissistic you are, the less likely that you are to experience choking. So if you, if you love yourself you know, too much, you're less likely to perform. And that's, part of that is, is, is related to confidence. Um, you know, the more confident you are, the less likelihood you are to experience choking. So there's a number of them, a number of personality characteristics that might be related um, that need to be studied potentially together, uh, you know, to, to be a, a, have a good idea of whether we, we will actually choke based on those. Right. And yeah, you just mentioned like uh, just answering that is that's the hundred thousand dollar question. It's more like, $10 $10 million question because at, <laughs> let's say I was just watching the MLB draft and looking at all those players being selected into, into the, into baseball. And I mean, they're all being handed million dollar contracts right away. And, yeah. um, the separators between the, the 15th pick and the 16th pick is so minuscule that if you can identify one thing that will give you a better athlete than the other, that's, you know, that's millions of dollars worth of, of knowledge. So, yeah. And unfortunately, though, you know, athletes, a lot of athletes are smart. So, you know, even if you can identify through questionnaires how high or low these athletes are, they either may, um, you know, if they think that it's going to affect whether they get selected, they may change the way they respond. That's not necessarily um, true to themselves and their personality. Uh, or, it might be that they they change the way they respond in a performance context. You know, you know, based on the personality, it may not necessarily be that their personality, you know, when they answer the questions, it's actually how they would 
respond in the competition. So it's a that's another reason why it's difficult to predict sort of and, and identify who's going to experience choking from that context because people change the way they they um, they actually respond in the situation. Um, you know, from from that context. So um, yeah, it's difficult from that that respect. Yeah, it is difficult, especially in in draft settings where every player has an agent and they drill those answers into them to answer each question perfectly. Yeah. And like, they're never going to show you their hand uh, where they're yeah. weak. And so, um, absolutely. Yeah. And so I want to ask you this. So after choking, let's say an athlete has a, um, a game where they choke, they, they have a, you know, a big underperformance. What can they do to kind of recover mentally from that and move past it so that in the next game and in the next season, they're able to kind of pick back up? So you're, you're saying after it's happened, can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and then the next time they come into competition, what can they do? Yeah, because I'm sure that's going to leave like a, a little bit of a traumatic experience in their heads. Like, well, last time I was in this moment, I choked big time. I let my team down, my coach down, embarrassed myself on TV or whatever. How can they move past that? Yeah. So in my my um, practical view, rather than my research view, mm-hmm. um, my applied view, I think I think choking is largely um, concentration dependent. And what I mean by that is, um, if you if you know what happened last time, uh, and you know that um, your attention was it, your attention changed based on the anxiety that there there is experienced um, that was experienced. Then um, concentration dependent for me means make sure that you concentrate on the the relevant things that you need to when you're performing that skill. So you know, in golf, for example, um, you know, in large part, it's it's all about what you're thinking about at that particular time and what you concentrate on. What is, eff- what is effective for your concentration at that moment? So the way to get, at, the, the way to get out of you know, that mindset is to make sure you're focusing on what you need to do when you need to do it. So in, in, a, in a golf situation, that routine, if, that, uh, if a pre-performance routine or a pre-shot routine keeps you focused on what you have to do right then, then that's going to be uh, beneficial to you. Um, and what I do sometimes with with um, athletes is is I set goals, and it, it's not not general goals. It's not goals about I want to win this and all that stuff. It's about routine goals. So in sports that I I work with, such as ten pin bowling and golf, you know, one key aspect to keep them focused on the, on concentration is set a goal of how many how much of a routine you can do, or what percentage of of a pre-shot routine you should do prior to uh, each shot, firstly, and then also over the competition. So I might say, look, I want you to concentrate on your routine. And if that focuses you you the most and you want to hit a target the most, I want you to set me a goal that you think you can achieve that keeps you focused on that routine. Because it's not focused about, you know, a lot of people that I work with, they focus on winning. They focus on a score. But it's the routine that keeps you, um, you know, con- your concentration and your focus. So I say, look, 
let's set a, a percentage of 90% of all of my shots. I want to go through my routine and I want to make sure that I do it every single time and in the similar way every time. Because then I know I'm focusing and I, I know where my concentration is. And that is including when you become anxious or if you become anxious throughout the competition. So more than likely your athlete that you're talking about, when they choked, they got anxious and they changed the change their concentration to something else. So if I can get that athlete to 95, 90 or 95% of the time, do their routine or do something that focuses their concentration on what they have to do to be, to do well, then that actually maintains concentration. And if they can tick that box every single time that they go to throw a shot or whatever it is, then, and then long-term they can, say that they've actually ticked the box off 95% of the time, most likely that outcome of winning will actually take care of itself if you focus on the routine itself and, and concentrate as you normally would. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's very true. Even it's just the human nature to keep focusing on outcomes all the time. We're, we're kind of like outcome focused beings, but really it's all about the process. If you focus your goals on the process, the outcome and you keep doing that long term more often than not the outcome will take care of itself yeah and that's exactly right and i've talked to athletes about that a number of times and you know that's that's what the best athletes do they don't get distracted by you know the the outcome they and even if they do they bring it back to what they need to do right then and and focus on that process before they actually get to 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 the result or the outcome right so I want to ask you about team collapses. So there's a lot of famous examples of choking on a team level. We can think about the Falcons against the Patriots in the Super Bowl or the Warriors blowing a 3-1 lead um, and lots more. Uh, here in Toronto, I'm sure if, if I have any listeners in Toronto, they would recognize the Leafs versus the Bruins. So does, does this team collapse have the same mechanisms as individualized choking, but it's on like a mass team level or is it different yeah that's a it's a good question that i can't answer totally uh, at the moment because there's just not enough research out there to to um, suggest exactly what happens um but in in my um uh infinite uh or i should say infancy view not not infinite mm -hmm. my infancy view the fact that uh, there's not much out there um what I would suggest is that there's there's a num so team choking just in general the team collapse is um, basically you know similar to the individual choking but in that the team sort of um, you know decreases their performance collectively so uh, in this context what I would suggest is um, you know what happens generally is that teams um, communication dies uh, in, in some, some respects. So uh, decreased communication, um, it might be that um, they start to play um, instead of aggressively, uh, assertively, if you will, uh, they tend to play tentatively. Uh, and because they're trying to, to not lose instead of actually winning. So there's a difference between those two contexts. If you're playing to win, you're playing aggressively as you normally would. Uh, but instead, uh, the the team tends to play less aggressively or tentatively, and they they play to not to lose. 
Um, so in that context, you know, that that's part of it. That's part of the causes. And it might be that, you know, one player, what we've found in some of my PhD students' research is that, um, you know, one player, one significant player, important player, if he, if he or she is having a bad day, that may affect all of the other players, like a, a, a contagion uh, within the team. Or if they, they make a bad shot or if they have a bad, um, you know, outcome or, or result of something, that creates a contagion, a mo- an emotional contagion that might actually affect the result of everyone else. And then everyone else starts playing bad or emotionally gets angry or frustrated or whatever. And it may go through the entire team. So again, in my view, team choking is, is more about the emotion and also the contagion that happens related to the collapse. Uh, and, I, and I think in large part, it's, it's largely because teams actually play to lose, play not to lose rather than play to win. I think that's a great point. And it's like a common trend that you see in every team that blows a lead in a series or a game is that they're up and they're winning and then they get complacent and they take their foot off the pedal and they start trying not to lose or like maintain the lead. Basically when you're trying to maintain the lead, you're just, you're trying not to lose. You're not trying to, you know, keep winning. And that's a huge part of it. Yeah. And I I think that's in, in large part, that's, there's a time when you can milk, milk the clock, if you will. Yeah. Um, but you know, if, uh, if you take take your foot off the gas too much, um, then uh, you know if, if something goes wrong, you quote unquote, for lack of a better word, screwed. Yeah. Um, pardon my French for those people that don't necessarily like um, uh, those words, but uh, yeah, it it just collapses around you, and um, you know it could be the the coach that starts that, it could be a, a key player. Um, but yeah, it just collapses around me. Mm-hmm. Now I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I only have a couple questions left for you and I want to get them in. Um, what, like, could the opponent's behavior, let's say trash talk and stuff like that lead to choking too? Does that have an effect on, uh, the anxiety level of players? So if you go, if you go by my response before in relation to concentration, um, I think you'll know the answer to that question. And that is yes. absolutely. If, if someone gets in your head, um, you can certainly, the, the whole point of trash talking and we call it sledging over here in Australia. Um, if, uh, the, the whole point of, of sledging is, um, to get, to get the person to, to be distracted. Um, you can't really say that the, if someone chokes because someone is sledging or, or trash talking uh, is because of the models that I, I talked about before, but you can certainly say that, you know, I guess if, if you want to put, put it to one model, it might be distraction related and that, you know, if someone's sledging or trash talking you, um, you know, at you, then you're trying to distract that person and in turn get them out of their own head and, and change the way they think. So yeah, I think definitely there is a, a place for sledging and trash talking in in sport, and I, I think it can lead to choking. Um, yeah, in that context. Yeah, and over here we call it like getting into your kitchen, or you know, someone's in your <laughs> kitchen rent free living yep, there. Yep, um, yeah, absolutely. So, which one of those strategies would you recommend to counteract 
uh, trash talking? <laughs> or is oh, there that's, that could be yeah, a, no, yeah, I know, question. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess um, there's not, well, it depends on what trying to, what kind of um, kitchen you want to get into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or what what kitchen they are getting into in that in that context um certainly when it when it's actually happening and trash talking and all that stuff it, if someone does actually get into your head again it's about concentration in that instance and again if it's uh a self-paced task where you can actually take some time to to do a routine or something like that uh, get yourself out of that that mindset, then obviously that might be a, a way to go go about um, sort of stopping stopping the thinking about those those ideas. Again, in in sports psych, we talk about thought stopping um, and not thinking about what you just heard. That would be a, a, a technique, uh, you know, in that context to to be able to just you know not necessarily research based, but it's applied techniques where we you know, just stop thinking about what you just heard and switch back on to your, your concentration where you, you would normally to improve your performance. Um, there's not really a, a specific intervention, a choking-related intervention to, to suggest, but something that gets your concentration back on focus. Right. So I want to end on this question, and this is something I'd like to ask all my guests um, about their areas of expertise. So what are some myths or misconceptions about choking that are common against uh, common am- amongst athletes and coaches or even sports fans um, mm-hmm. that are just, you know, either not true or not as simple as we might think? Yeah. So from a choking perspective. Yeah. So myths about choking. Um, I guess one is um, just because someone doesn't win and they're expected to win. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's choking. So Emily Seabom, uh, an Australian swimmer, I think it was in the 2012 Olympics. Um, correct me if I'm wrong in the year there, um, or forgive me if I'm wrong in the year there. Um, she was expected to win in the 100, 100 meter freestyle race, um, and she she won silver by you know tenths of a second. Um, and everyone was saying that she experienced choking, but in actuality, you know, she might have been a little bit more nervous, and that might have cost her the gold medal. Uh, but you can't really say, you know, being off by just a split second or a, a, you know milliseconds is a reason that you know, or is is a choking experience. So, I guess that's one myth that that you can kind of say, got to be a little bit less on your game than that. Uh, in in that from that point of view, yeah, and, and that's similar to here. Like uh, when it gets when it comes to hockey in the Olympics or hockey in, in the World Junior Championships, if Team Canada doesn't win gold every time, then it's a choke job. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, other teams could have just elevated their performance. They they had a deeper team that year, and also it, it gets dangerous when you label every time someone loses when they're expected to to win a choker because then that also creates that kind of like identity about them and that's that's a bit of a dangerous game yeah and that, that's probably the worst part of about it uh when people experience choking and people people start calling them a uh choker they might feel like that's a part of them and that cr- just creates more 
uh, episodes um, that that might happen, and and goes back to the idea that you say said of what do you what do you do to get people to get out of that mindset? And exactly right, and that's you know that's something that uh, creates more anxiety, you know, and, and even in some of the studies that use qualitative interviews with some athletes, they you know, chronic chokers always talked about that and, and said, look, I just, I can't get out of my own head now. I can't, I can't think of anything else besides the fact that I have choked and that's not necessarily great. It's, you know, the mind's a wonderful thing, isn't it? The brain is a wonderful thing. It, it can, it can create, um, you know, mythical things that are not necessarily there and perceived ideas that, that aren't necessarily there. And, um, unfortunately it can create bad things like, you know, the, an experience, that experience of choking and, you know, that's never, it's never going to go away, which is probably a bad thing. Um, but hopefully your listeners will understand that, you know, choking is not a, um, a death sentence. Um, if you will, uh, everyone can overcome it as long as you concentrate better. Right. And hopefully listeners also next time they're watching, uh, a game and someone chokes, don't tweet at them and tell them they're chokers because you never know what kind of damage you're doing to those people. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. right. So again, I, I took up a lot of your time and I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time. Um, where can people find you and follow you in social media, anything else? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, C Masano, I think is my at handle. Um, so feel free to follow me on, me on Twitter. I'm at Federation University Australia. So if you just uh, look up Chris Masano, I know Masano is spelt a little bit strangely, but uh, if you you look me up uh, there, I, you can find my email address on the website and and uh, sort of go from there. So that's Twitter is probably the best place uh, to to find me in in relation to that point of view. And if you want to chat with me, go ahead and um, follow me there. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you.